Could we start the meeting this afternoon by singing 312 and 313 in succession? 312 and 313. Lead on, Almighty Lord, lead on to meeting, Psalm 62 and verse 11. Psalm 62, 11. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Twice have I heard this, once with our ears, but then again with our hearts. Power belongeth unto God. I'd like to, with the Lord's help, look at the subject of government. I'd like to look at why there is 
government, the ways of God in his dispensational ways in this present world in connection with government and with calling, the place that we have as Christians in connection with government and then government in its future. My heart's been <clears throat> somewhat burdened lately as to the involvement of Christians in the political realm, a place that I don't think we can find any, any foundation in Scripture to support that we should be involved in that arena. I'd like to start with Romans and the 13th chapter. Where we get <clears throat> instructions for us as believers in connection with government in this world. Romans 13 verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers or authorities, authorities higher than us. For there is no power or authority but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. Three times in this portion, we find that God ordained authority, God ordained government in this world is his minister, his servant. Power belongs to God. Man has no power in himself. It comes from God. He gives it to whom he will, and he has established authority or power in this world for a particular purpose. And three times, God-ordained government is called his minister, first of all, to thee, for us, for good. He has us in view in connection with the government that he has established in this world. He has our blessing in view. Also, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. He's a minister of God. 
to restrain evil in this world. That's his job. And thirdly, he's a servant of God. He has an office that is given to him of God to collect taxes. We've talked about an inheritance. All created things are an inheritance. And he's a minister to collect taxes to maintain our inheritance until the day comes that we possess it with the Lord. So we can thank the Lord for that and not complain. that mean he does a good job with it? That's another thing. Power is one thing, but it's execution and use is another. And it involves the gravest responsibility before God who has given it. Why is there government? Well, we've had three things that are given to us. But if we turn back to Genesis and look at the dispensational ways of God, we'll see the chief reason there in his dispensational ways that he established such authority in this earth. Let's turn back to Genesis 8. The dispensational ways of God unfold in this present world. There's three worlds in Second Peter 3, the world that then was overflown with a flood, the world that now is reserved in store with fire against the day of wrath and judgment, and there's a new heavens and new earth. The dispensational ways of God unfold in this present world, properly speaking. And the first dispensation was given, the first administration from God, an order dealing with man, order dealing of God with man on the earth in Genesis chapter 9. But the reason for it is given in chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 21. Upon the sacrifice that Noah offered, it says, The Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. God says, as it were, as Noah steps out on that new earth, we're going to begin again, but we're going to begin upon a new understanding. And that is that man's evil through and through. Only thoughts of his heart are evil from his youth. I'm not going to start again on the principles of the antediluvian world because it just ended in violence and corruption. I'm not going to let man go unrestrained. Chapter 9, he institutes that restraint. Chapter 9 and verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And you be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. This draws our thoughts back to the very first sin that we read of in the Word of God after the fall, and that was the murder of Cain, or murder of Abel by Cain. 
And God says to Noah, that was an unwarrantable assumption of what only belongs to me, because the life is in the blood. Life belongs to God. Man is not allowed to take it. And if he does, this is the punishment. His life is to be taken. But I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it. And he put into man's hands the responsibility to restrain his fellow man and to execute judgment if evil raises its head. And so it's given in principle, every detail of law and government, not given here, but it's given in principle to Noah, that man is responsible to restrain man and God gives him that authority. The very next thing that happens in that with that man to whom government was instituted in principle is that he fails to govern himself. And at the beginning of every dispensation of God, there is some sin that characterizes the general failure of that dispensation. He failed to govern himself and he corrupted himself. And it says in verse 21, he drank of the wine and was drunken and he was uncovered within his tent. Well, we know the story. Ham sees his father. He thinks it's funny. He mocks. He despises his father. And he tries to get his brothers to go along with him in that. They refuse. They honor their father. And they go in backwards in that tent with a blanket and cover him. Noah wakes out of his drunkenness, realizes what has happened. And he says, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Canaan was Ham's son. It would seem that perhaps, I don't know how old he was, but it was Noah's grandson who first noticed the sin, told his father, who then led the sin of despising that man in whom God had invested authority and power. Not only was he his father, but he stood there as God's minister in holding the sword of government. I'm going to come back here to Genesis in a minute. Just turn to Jude. A curse came upon Ham's family, Canaan in particular, and blessing for Shem and Japheth. Let's look at Jude chapter, or excuse me, verse 8. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. 
Verse 10, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. (coughs) Brethren, how careful we need to be with our lips. In connection with God-ordained government in this world, it failed from the beginning. It's still failing today. Nonetheless, power belongeth unto God, and he put them in their place, and we are not to speak evil of dignities. If we do, and despise dominion, despise those that God has set in authority, we take our place with the filthy dreamers that crept in unawares, into professing Christianity. We don't want to stand there. In professing Christianity, there's a tremendous backing of the current administration. And coupled with it are some of the most vile things that could be said about the previous about a man who God put in the highest office in this world for eight years, who bore the responsibility before God as to that office. And Christians don't blush to speak evilly of that man. That's irregardless of his failures or what he was promoting. Irregardless. And the woman who was his vice president, as they chant in their rallies, lock her up. Christian voices are there, despising dominion. Oh, they take their place with those that crept in unawares. In Genesis, as time went on, We know the next thing that took place was they built that tower in the plains of Shinar. God came down in judgment upon them and he separated the peoples by language, divided them into nations. And so thus far in this new world, we have government ordained. We have, certainly we know marriage and is from God. And we have God telling Noah to be fruitful and multiply. God is, families are his institution. And now government is as well, or or, uh, nations are as well. Yes, it was in judgment, but he did it. He is the one who created the nations. And he had it with a particular object in mind. I'm going to just read from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And verse 8, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance... 
When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He was going to have a particular people and a particular place that he had for them in this earth. Interestingly enough, that land that he purposed for that nation was seized upon by the very one who came under the curse, Canaan. Mr. Darby says he seized the jewel of the Orient. But God displaced him in time and brought his people into that land. So we have families, extended family, we have nations, we have government, things that are ordained by God, set up by God. There's a problem. Sin can come in any of those things. And it did. And so God brings another principle in. And he calls a man named Abram. And the God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia, Stephen said. And he said, get out. Get out. And he called him out of father's house. Immediate family, kindred, extended family, and nation. He didn't say, reform your father's house. We know they were idolaters. We read that in Joshua 24. He didn't say, reform your extended family. He didn't say, reform the nation that you belong to. He said, get out. And he got out. And he came into that land of promise. The Canaanite dwelt there. He went through the length and breadth of the land. He left everything just as it was was his inheritance but he left everything just as it was god didn't call him out of moral corruption yes there was moral corruption he called him out of those things that he had instituted himself and he brings the principle of calling in that there might be a principle that would act upon us that we would not be bound to the very things he has instituted when sin comes in. It's a higher calling. It's a higher authority. Well, God had separated the sons of Adam. He had a nation in mind, and in time we go on through the scriptures, and that family of Abram's grows And in Hosea, and the 11th chapter, we get a beautiful verse. Hosea 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Israel was called by God as a nation, as Abram had been as an individual those many years before. That's what Paul calls in Romans 9 the adoption. They had a place of sonship nationally before God. He called his son out of Egypt. That was the birth of that nation, the exodus. 
They were called by God. Not only that, if we turn back a little to Jeremiah in the third chapter, in verse 17 we read this, At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, the throne of Jehovah. And if we were to look at First Chronicles 29 at the coronation of Solomon, we would read these words, Then sat Solomon on the throne of Jehovah in the stead of his father, David. Yes, David's throne was the throne of the Lord in this earth. And so now we take these two principles, these two dispensations, government and calling, and they are brought together now in one nation, called by God, the seat of his government in this world. Turn over to scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23 Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. David was the benchmark king, but he was a failure as much as Noah. And really the history of the kings of Israel and Judah are nothing but a history to show that the first man cannot hold the scepter in righteousness. He can't. And David acknowledges that And he looks on to someone who's going to come and be just and rule in the fear of God and bring blessing as a consequence and restrain the sons of Belial, restrain evil in this world. He looks on to that day. Great David's greater son. Well, if we were to turn to Isaiah 1, we would find that that favored nation failed in their calling. And they served idols. They failed in government. And they did not execute just government in that land even. And God cast them out of that land. The Shekinah glory left the temple in Ezekiel. 
went out of Jerusalem, went up the side of the mountain. The Lord follows the same pattern in Matthew 23 and 24, out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, up the side of the Mount of Olives, and he'll come back at that same place that he left, just like the Shekinah glory. No longer the throne of Jehovah. And they were cast out of that land. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 38. Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. We know the story. Nebuchadnezzar had had the dream of that tremendous metal image. He was quite awestruck by it, later tried to copy it, build his own, the plains of Dura. And Daniel gives him the interpretation of the dream that he had as to that mighty, tremendous metal image that it was the success of Gentile empires, and he was the beginning of that succession of empires. And we find that the sword of government no longer resides with Israel as a nation, but it's transferred to Gentile powers. And Nebuchadnezzar is head of that. The sword is put into his hand. And there's a succession of empires that are going to follow after him, from the Babylonian to the Medo-Persian to the Grecian to the Roman. And the Gentile powers held the sword of government. Nebuchadnezzar says, maybe it's not exactly Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, get the context here, in another vision, it says, verse 17, this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. Nebuchadnezzar got lifted up in pride of his position and power and independent in his thoughts as to receiving that from God and God was going to have to cut him down until he knew that the power he had came from God, because power belongeth to God. And so he was cut down. But he hears this. He sets up over the kingdom of men the basest of men, the lowest of the low. Why are you surprised, dear Christian, when you see the basest of men sitting on the thrones of power in this world? Why? 
Does it give us any right to resist that power? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not only we should know more than all others that he sets over the kingdom of men, the basest of men. We should know. We shouldn't expect anything different. But we're so surprised at times. How thankful we can be if he sets a righteous man in that place. They're responsible to God to rule justly. That's true. But don't be surprised. He sets up over the kingdom of men, the basest of men at times. In this chapter, we see Nebuchadnezzar pictured as a tree and he's cut down. But the stump of the roots is left in the earth. It's like to apply it this way. You know that succession of kingdoms came to an end around A.D. 460, somewhere in there, fall of the Roman Empire. But the stump of the roots is left in the earth till the day comes when this world learns what Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that the Most High ruleth in the kingdoms of men. And the stump of the roots is still there today, and they bear not the sword in vain. It's going to revive. You cut a tree down that's uh, in vigor and full of sap, you'll find that pretty soon there are sprigs that spring out and grow up. Pretty soon you can have a tree again. It's going to flourish again someday. (laughs) But we know the man that's going to bring that to pass. What about calling? The sword transferred to the Gentiles did the call of God? No. In Romans 11, we read the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God has not changed his mind as to the call of his earthly people. And the time came when that promised king that David looked for was born. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? He came. But they put him on a cross. And they put that title over him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And Israel's hopes were dashed, as was brought out earlier. They were dashed. And that kingdom that he would have established was postponed. He hasn't changed his mind. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance, but it's postponed until another day. And then what unfolded? All that deep secret that was in the heart of God came out. That mystery that was hidden God from ages and from generations. The truth of Christ and the church and the Spirit of God came down on Pentecost and that church was formed and brought into existence, united to Christ in heaven. 
And we read in Hebrews, holy brother, partakers of the heavenly calling. We read in Second Peter, God has called us by glory and virtue, the same God of glory that called Abram long ago has called you and I into fellowship with him. We read in Colossians, we're called in one body. This is the time of the calling of the church. Oh, did Israel's call get transferred to us? No. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And if Israel's call could get transferred to the church, then we stand in danger of losing it ourselves, for we failed every bit as much as the church, as Israel had. But the gifts and the call of God are without repentance. We have been called by God. But the sword of government remains firmly with the Gentile powers. It was never given to the church. Sad to say, there are those and some dear believers and men of God. Zwingli is one that comes to mind who took the sword. Luther said of him, they that take the sword will perish by the sword. And so he did in the battlefield. It didn't belong to him. The Lord said to Peter, put up thy sword. Put up thy sword. You and I have not been given the responsibility to restrain evil in this world. Why then do Christians protest at abortion clinics? What are they trying to do? Get sinners to stop sinning? And all of the other protests that they get involved with, trying to stop sinners from sinning? Who's been given that responsibility? God-ordained government's been given the sword to restrain evil, not the church. We've got no place being involved in that. We have been put here, as we find in Matthew 5, ye are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. As we walk in the truth of God, as we walk through this world in obedience to him, we are going to have a preservative effect upon this world. And so it has been. The more the saints of God walk in the truth of God and the closer they stay to the Lord, the more this world feels the preservative effect of us being salt. But salt can lose its savor. And what are you going to make it into salt with if it isn't salt anymore? You, nothing. It's worthless. As we walk in the light of his word, we're dispensers of divine light in this world. That's the place we have been given. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ we have this treasure in earthen vessels, but it's for the shining out. And Paul goes on to say, we, are, we then are ambassadors for Christ. And we have a message that has been given to us. 
in a ministry of grace and glory. And that message is, we beseech you, be reconciled to God. That's our job. Not to get sinners to stop sinning, but to bring them to Christ. What do you expect from a sinner but sin? You're not going to get anything else. They need a new life. They need a Savior. They need to be reconciled to God. Anything else is an empty remedy. The government can restrain sinners from sinning, and they get out of prison and they go right back to their sins. First Timothy gives us some other help and connection with our place in respect of government. First Timothy chapter 2. Verse 1, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's something we've been given to do, to pray for those that are in authority. Oh, I see a lot, a lot of encouragement floating around the internet put out by Christians to pray for the current administration and president. Where were they for the eight years before that? It's a, it's a little lopsided. It says pray for all of them. He put them in their place. We need to pray for them that they would do their job. Because if they do their job and restrain evil, we're going to live quiet and peaceable lives. Do we just pray for the ones that we think are favorable to Christianity and speak evil of the rest? That's not for a Christian. We need to pray for all of them. If a rebellion arose in this land and the current administration was overthrown and a new one took its place that was antagonistic to Christianity, Go back to Romans 8, or Romans 13. The powers that be are ordained of God, not just the ones that were yesterday. The powers that be right now are ordained of God. It would be our place to submit. Now another principle comes in. And we read in Acts chapter 4 that Peter says, should 
you judge ye whether we should obey God or man. We're never to be in a place where we don't submit, but it may be we need to submit to God above man. We're never to be in the place where we disobey, but it may be we need to obey God rather than man. Thankful for that principle, but it can involve a tremendous cost. But it's there. Otherwise, we're to submit. We're to acknowledge that those authorities are from God, and we're to pray for them. Nero was in power when this was written. Christian human torches lit his gardens. Paul said, we're to pray for all that are in authority, kings and so on. That's our place as believers, intercession. What a happy place. What a better place than protest and resistance and struggle. That's where we fit in. A brother some years ago just been saved and was struggling with where we fit in. And uh, he came to Brother Bruce Conrad. I'll mention his name because I think it helps if you know Brother Bruce. Came to Bruce, struggling with these things, and he, he put a piece of paper on the desk, and he took a pen, he wrote something like, the left and the right, and drew a line between them, and handed him the pen and says, where do we fit on this line? Bruce took the pen, he threw it. So that's where we fit. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. We don't fit on that line. We're not left or right or centrist or green party or anything else. We're called from above. Heavenly men by birth. Who once were but the citizens of earth. Turn a little over in Timothy chapter 6. Here's our fight. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. They hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed the good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession or the good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That commandment was found in the first chapter where Paul gives his mandate to Timothy that he was to remain in Ephesus to make sure that nothing else but the truth of God was taught in Ephesus. And he adjures him, and in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ and his good confession before Pilate. So let's turn back to John's Gospel where we can find that good confession. John's Gospel, chapter 18. The Lord had been brought by 
the Jews and accused to Pilate that he had made himself king and was endangering Caesar's interests. And Pilate was responsible to maintain Caesar's interests in that land. And so he had a concern. And he says to the Lord in verse 33, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. Satisfied. Question asked. Are Caesar's interests in jeopardy? Not by a man whose kingdom isn't of this world. What does Caesar care about a kingdom that's out of this world? He doesn't care anything about that. No fighting servants? Nothing to worry about there. This little interchange with Pilate, you might say, is in two sections. First, his concern for Caesar's interests. But the second part is Pilate the man. Even though Caesar's interests were secure, there's something about this man. There's something about this man. And now he comes as Pilate, the man, not the governor. And he says, you know, I just think of him getting close to the Lord. Just looking at him. Art thou a king then? Thou sayest that I am king to this end. Was I born? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Yes, for this end he was born king, who they are about to put upon a cross. But then he says something else. And I think this is the good confession. For this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Oh, Timothy, if you maintain the truth, that I've been given from an ascended Christ among the saints of God at Ephesus, you'll be partaking in the good confession of our Lord Jesus Christ before Pilate. He came to bear witness of the truth. You and I have been put here for the same reason. The church is the pillar and the ground. Of the truth. Philippians 
chapter 3. Verse 18, for many of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There were those who were minding earthly things. That is, they were seeking to bring the earthly religion of Judaism into Christianity in order to make it more palatable and to avoid persecution, avoid the sufferings that came with bearing the cross. They minded earthly things. Oh, why is it that Christians are fighting to have a Christian government, are protesting to stop sinners from sinning because they want to live without anything to bother them. They want to go on and on and on and on until, well, I die and go to heaven in a land where there's nothing to oppose or to offend me in any way. Oh, brethren, it's minding earthly things. We don't look for salvation here. We look for a Savior from heaven. He's our man. Isaiah 32. Verse 1, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water, and a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Verse 16, Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field, and the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places. He's our man. He's coming. He's going to set everything right. It's going to be like a morning without clouds. And he must reign until everything is brought under his feet, till everything is brought into subjection to God. And he only can do it. He's the one that we look for. Ezekiel chapter 21, it says, I will overturn it, overturn it, overturn it. 
It shall be no more till he come, whose right it is, and I will give it him. It's his by right. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He alone can open that book with its seven seals and bring to pass all the counsels of God. In Thessalonians, time is getting down there. In Thessalonians and uh, second, second Thessalonians, second chapter, we find that there is one who restrains evil in this world, unnamed, and uh, perhaps it's a little different than some have had uh, thought of it, but I'd like to bring out what I think is the truth of this little portion. There is a mystery of iniquity that works, but there is that which withholdeth, in verse 6, that he might, the man of sin, might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. God is going to, by the power of the Spirit of God, sustain God-ordained government in this world until the church is gone. When the apple of his eye, when the object of his affections has been taken out of this world, the time for judgment is going to come, and not before. Not till Lot, so to speak, was taken out of Sodom did judgment fall on that place. And the man of sin is going to be revealed. But what is restraining him now? What has always restrained sin in this world since that new earth began that Noah stepped out on God-ordained government, sustained by the power of the Spirit of God. And in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, you see the Spirit of God removing His power, supporting every institution that man is dependent upon, and the whole thing crumbles into a horrific mass of confusion. In Revelation 17, we read that then the beast comes out of the pit. And the first time in this world, there is going to be a government that is not ordained by God. The Lord said to Pilate, you could have no power against me except it had been given to you from above. But that beast is going to get his power from underneath. And the Lord's going to come. And he's going to destroy him and his kingdom and establish his own. Well, in First Peter, Second Peter 3, we read of the world that is yet to come, a new heavens and new earth, says, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Not reigns, dwells. Because there's no evil to put down. There's no evil to restrain in that new heaven and new earth. It's all gone. It's every trace is gone. Righteousness will dwell, but there's going to be no government to restrain. Just like the world before the flood, there was no government, there were no nations, all were of one language. In the new heavens and new earth, there's no government, there's no nations, all one language. Now is the time of the unfolding of his dispensations. But we look forward to that day of God when everything will be brought into accordance with him 
Could we sing 115? 115. Head of the church, thy body, O Christ, thy grace, to our hearts. Once thou hast spoken, help us to 